0: Well, we last left the prophet Jonah in a rather perilous situation, hurled overboard as a scapegoat, a successful offering to calm the raging sea. And the text leaves him adrift at sea. It actually forgets about him briefly and focuses back on the worshiping sailors who are sacrificing to the Lord and making vows on deck. And today, of course, we come to what has made the story famous, I guess, the fish. It's not a whale. At least it's not necessarily a whale. All we can say from the word used is that it was a great or a huge fish. But it's not focused on. It's mentioned at the beginning of our text and the end of it, and that's the only times it's mentioned in the book. No fanfare. No elaboration, no speculation for sure. Um, And it's really a shame that a book which is so full of very profound and important, relevant teaching uh, has produced so much fascination about the fish. Uh, We are full of fanciful questions and diversions and uh, distractions. We are to focus on what the text focuses on. This is part of order and proportion, right? For us, it's the text. The text, the text, the text, the text. Nothing but the text, all of the text, all of the time. Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. To be obsessed with the text. The shape of the text, the contours of the text, the words of the text, the syntax of the text, the grammar of the text, the text interaction with other texts. And yes, the text mentions the fish. It's obviously not unimportant, but it's not of any fundamental importance. What happens to Jonah in the fish, however, right? What, what the story dramatizes and enacts, it's pointing to what God does in Jesus Christ, who is the substance and the story of the Old Testament. Right? These are the things we care about. All of the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Right? And so the whole narrative of the Old Testament unfolds and points us toward Christ. So with that, we'll make two points. Not surprisingly, uh, death and resurrection, they're there on the insert in your bulletin. Death and resurrection. So first, death. We don't know how long Jonah was f- flailing around in the water. But we're told that the Lord provided or appointed, literally appointed, a great or a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Now, three other times in the book of Jonah, this word appointed is used. All of them are in chapter 4, which Lord willing we'll get to look at in a few weeks. All of them are chapter 4. God appoints a plant. God then appoints a worm. And then he appoints a scorching wind. Right. Here he appoints a fish. All with respect to Jonah. All to instruct Jonah. It's as if the whole creation becomes a theater or a classroom in which God's sovereignty is used to instruct and teach us. Right? It's a beautiful thing to see God's sovereign over the fish and worms and winds and plants. He appoints things and he orders them. Animate things, inanimate things for your good. For his glory. He delights to do this, to use physical stuff. And so we see at the outset a sovereignty which extends right, from, from the wind hurled onto the sea to the worms to fish. This is the mercy of God made concrete, made practical to you. These are the fingers of God in your life. For though Jonah is still running, right, God has gone ahead of him. God has gone before him. This is one of the great themes of the book of Jonah. And it's one of the great themes of Holy Scripture, right? For while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, God goes ahead of us in his mercy. We are engulfed in it beforehand. There was, in this text, and the narrator likes to use certain hook words, right, to string things together, there was a great city, Nineveh. There was a great wind. They feared a great fear. And now there's a great fish. And the fish snatches Jonah up. Despite himself, the fish is Jonah's salvation. Of course, not, not in the literal sense of saving him from drowning. Although, of course, he is in that sense, I suppose. But not only in that sense. More profoundly, the fish is for him... Death and resurrection, right? The fish for Jonah is salvation through judgment. So the story is shaped from the beginning. It's a Christological story. And this is how we read the Old Testament. The text says a huge fish swallowed Jonah. And now, suddenly, all of the action in the book, all the running and the winds and the waves and the, terrified sailors. All of it slows down. It's the beautiful thing about chapter, and we pause. A giant fish swallows Jonah, and we are left as readers holding our breath. Right? And an attentive reader of the Old Testament narrative is going to think, oh, oh, This is really important. I mean, Israel has a long history of being swallowed up by enemies. Swallowed up by Egypt and swallowed up by Babylon. Swallowed up by the Assyrians. Swallowed up by the Romans. Engulfed in forces too big. Swallowed up by these untamable beasts. And in the end, they know, of course, that death swallows us all. And now, a holy prophet, an Israelite, is swallowed up. He's gone down, right? Down and down and down. His his turning from God, from the summons and call of God on his life, is a descent into darkness. Which it always is for us. Down to Joppa, down below deck down into the sea, and now down into the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And of course, we heard in the gospel lesson. Remember I said, Jonah's the only minor prophet that Jesus quotes from. And he quotes from him at some length. He grew up a few miles from Jonah's hometown. We know from the gospel lesson that Jesus speaks of this whole story as a type or a picture of his three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah has descended into a typological, a type, of hell. It's a kind of symbolic descent into hell. So here is Jonah. In silence. In darkness. Dying. Engulfed and helpless. And we don't know how long it was inside of this living prison before, before, as verse 1 tells us, finally, he, from inside the fish, he prayed to the Lord his God. Sometimes it takes a lot to get us to pray. Finally, from inside the fish, he prayed. This is the first reliable sign in the book of something like repentance. And repentance for us always means turning back to God's presence. And turning back to the presence of God means prayer. I think we're prone to forget this. Prayer is the fundamental Christian action. Calvin says prayer is the chief exercise of piety. It's the church's chief political action. And it has built into it a sort of pedagogy, a sort of teaching, ability to teach and instruct. Because there's ironies involved with this. This is the church's chief action. And yet it's a sign. It's a sort of confession of our own impotence in ourselves. It's an action which looks a lot like inaction. Especially to the American culture. Right? It's an action in which we confess our helplessness to change the situation. It's an action of self-emptying. An action of weakness. An action in which we come with empty hands. This is the chief act. Exercise of faith. This. Pray. And the prayer, notice, is given in the form of a poem. I mean, who prays a poem from inside the belly of a beast? You know, there's a the thing about poetry: it can look, perhaps, as a useless thing or an ornamental thing. Poetry's ornamental. It's just a pretty little thing. We can discard it. But it's not. Right? It's a statement that beauty is greater than all the, the, the convulsions of death in the world. Right? We write poetry while the bombs are falling. We pray from inside the belly of the beast. Perhaps it's only poetry that can convey the trauma. Right? The, the, the dread, the desperation of Jonah's soul. Right? Certainly that's true right? throughout the Psalter, throughout the whole book of the Psalms. You have these huge tracts of anguish and despair and suffering, and they're documented as poems, songs. And, and Jonah's prayer here shows that he knows his Psalter, right? that he has the Psalter in his bones and marrow, that it's his prayer book. We can't recount them, but we hear echoes of uh, Psalm 18 in this prayer, Psalm 42, and about a half a dozen other psalms. They're all just bleeding out of Jonah. So to return to God, or maybe put it differently, to turn to God in our trauma, is always a returning or a turning to his word. In addition to prayer he turns to the word. He has the Psalter in him. Isn't it remarkable that Jonah has the means of grace in the belly of the beast? He has no standing. He has no human resources. But you know what he has? He has the means of grace. Because he has prayer and he has the word. And that, it turns out, will be more than enough. He has the means of grace. These are his weapons. This is the church's strategy. This is why, by the way, beloved, we have to make sure the Psalms are in us before the trauma. Right? I mean, do you pray the Psalms? You should. Let me encourage you to do that. Your prayers... When you pray, they should have the cadences of the psalms, the rhythms of the psalms, the vocabulary of the psalms, the flow of the psalms. The church should be praying the psalms, not just in private, but in public. Your prayers should be shaped by the beauty and the poetry of the psalms. Too much of our praying, if I can say this charitably, is ugly. And the psalms are beautiful. The prayers of the Bible are beautiful prayers. Paul's prayers are gorgeous. The prayers of the saints in Revelation are spectacular. The Psalms, the poetry, the Song of Songs in the Bible is beautiful stuff. Now, of course, God hears all our prayers, but putting the the Psalter in you means your prayers are going to come out shaped looking like the Psalter. And we want that. that. Not that God evaluates the beauty and somehow accepts the prayer, but we want to reflect the beauty of Christ and the beauty of Scripture. We see the prayers. So, these poems are there to get into our bones before the trauma. This has to happen to us now. Right? Because there are no texts to consult in the belly of the beast. Right? Even if there were, the lighting's very bad. You can't, you can't do any reading in there. So, what can Jonah do? Well, he can think. He can pray, he can contemplate, and he can wait. You know what? Turns out this is the most potent stuff he does in the whole book. This is the most potent stuff he does in the whole book. So, what's happening? It looks like nothing's happening. But what's happening is the word of God is sounding with new depths in the being of Jonah, right? Everything looks different from the bottom, right? Everything looks different to the dispossessed. I was telling a couple people, I think last week, I said, as I taught through 1 Peter and preached through it, I came to the conviction that it might not even be able to be heard by American Christians, that you might have to actually be in jail to read it well. We forget this, right? The huge swaths of the New Testament is the literature of the dispossessed. Right? A whole chunk of Paul's letters are written from inside a prison cell. The whole book of Revelation is written from inside a Roman prison. Right? The Christians in 1 Peter are in a fiery ordeal of suffering where they're being stripped of all their earthly security. The Christians in the book of Hebrews joyfully gave up their property because they had a a grander inheritance. The Gospels are about the one who was rich and became poor for our sakes. The book of Acts is the church being harassed throughout the Mediterranean as she preaches the Gospel. Right? We forget what we're dealing with here. And Jonah has got a new social location. And from that new social location, everything looks different. You read with fresh eyes when you're dying. I can tell you that dying reads Scripture as a pastor better than the living. You want to see someone get serious with the text of the New Testament? Then visit someone that's got one week to live. The imprisoned read it better than the free often. The exile and the oppressed, they read it. The desperate and the poor. Scripture is read right by the engulfed and Jonah is engulfed. And against his will, he is made to go the way none of us would ever choose to go. He's made to go the way of the cross, the way of descent. And so, he begins his prayer, his poetic prayer, with a summary. Here it is. It's a dispatch from the underworld. From the margins, from underneath, right? He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Now, of course, we pray all the time, but we really pray when we're distressed. We call upon the Lord when we're distressed. And he answered me, Jonah said. "From deep, Notice this, the text says this, from deep in the realm of the dead. You know, you may not realize it or not, but that's basically the place we pray from a lot. I'll come back to that later, but... From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listen to my cry. So he recognizes, Jonah, that this fish is appointed for his salvation. But it's a salvation that brings him down to the depths, to the realm of the dead. Literally the phrase means from the belly of Sheol. Right? From the, from the watery graves. God had hurled a wind, he hurls Jonah into the depths. And there is, as the poem unfolds, you'll see this in it, right? There's this flood of water imagery. Right? You've got this deep, churning, mysterious sea, and it evokes this cosmic battle between the sovereign God, who's Lord of the wind and the waves and the sea and the created order, and the forces, the chaotic forces of the underworld, or the forces of darkness. Right? That's what the poem Kind of—that's the the the, uh, the language, the literary world that it trades in—and this is why, and we see this in the Psalter. This is why souls that are in deep distress relate to the Psalter. In fact, in the teeth of death, we use aquatic imagery. Right, Psalm sixty-nine, for example, which is a prayer, a messianic psalm: "Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck." I sink in the miry depths. There's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. You have been and you shall be where Jonah is. Everybody knows this descent. And in verse 5, you can see this in verse 5, the waters are said to engulf, to threaten, and to surround Jonah. Seaweeds wrapping around his head, he's descending even further. Right, life is like that. You think, well, we can't descend any further than this. We can't lose, we can't lose any more than this. right? There's a great Bob Dylan line where he says, when you think that you've lost everything, you find out you can always lose a little more. Right? So Jonah, who's gone down and down and down and sunk, and then he says this. He says in verse 6, I went down to the roots of the mountains. I'm so far under the sea that I can see the bottom of the mountains and I can see the floor of the sea. And then he goes down even further and he says that the earth beneath opened up and barred him in forever like he's locked in the prison of the dead. And the heart of death, right? The heart of this God-forsaken descent is expressed in verse 4. Here it is. I have been banished from your sight he's lost the vision of God right to, to be seen by God and to see God right? to be in the presence of God that is our light and our joy right? he's cast out of the presence of God which is itself the essence of hell right? the essence of hell is to have the light of God's face extinguished in our lives And if you've been running away from God, which we do by nature, or turned your back on him, then your life is becoming a small foretaste of hell itself. Right? So, all light, all comfort are gone for Jonah. But then there's this little ray, like this little glimmer, this shaft of hope. It's at the end of verse 4. He says this at the end of verse four, yet I will look again to your holy temple toward the temple at the bottom of the ocean inside the fish. He thinks about the temple. He says that's because that's where Yahweh dwells. That's where he puts his name. That's where he makes his presence manifest. Right. That's where his glory is. That's where his face shines. Right. And more importantly, that's where blood is sprinkled to atone for Jonah's sins. And so, from the bottom of the sea, in this bitter ordeal by water, he looks up to the temple, to the realm of life and light. And that brings us finally to the second point resurrection. Death and then resurrection. The middle of verse 6. But you, Lord my God, now Jonah calls God his God, you have brought my life up from the pit, right? Finally, the story changes direction. It had been down, 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 down. Now it's you brought my life up from the pit. The waters of death have become the waters of deliverance. So now Jonah has what theologians call verticality. He's oriented to God, to the temple, through prayer and through the word. His perspective becomes heavenly and transcendent. You have brought me up out of the depths. His life was ebbing away, he says in verse 7. He was close to death. And he remembered the Lord, and he says, My prayer rose up to your holy temple. Like incense, right? Our prayers rise into the temple of God. And from that temple, God hears and answers him. Now, I was tempted to skip verse 8. But I'll just say a brief word about it. Because it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd verse to encounter in the poem. Here's verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. It seems a little too soon for Jonah to be condemning other idolaters. Don't you think? It's, it's, like, the, it's like the new convert who's condemning everybody who committed all the sins that they committed 12 hours ago. So all of a sudden, Jonah's worried about those clinging to worthless idols? I don't know. Sure, it's true enough, but is he thinking of these Gentile sailors on the boat? I mean, does he still think he's better than them? I mean, who goes down to the bottom of the sea and in the middle of their prayer for deliverance starts worrying about other people's idolatry? It's just weird, right? And we'll revisit this later in the book. Does Jonah still think he's better? Because we're going to have to ask ourselves a question if even here, Jonah's repentance is authentic. Spoiler alert, it's not authentic even here. Astonishingly so. But for now, even though he's unaware of it, these idolatrous sailors have beaten him to it. They offered sacrifices and vows to the Lord on deck. Last week's text, Jonah does that now. And then he makes this exclamation, which is many people think this is the theme verse of the book, but it's certainly the theme of the Bible. You can argue that this is maybe the theme of the Bible. Salvation is from the Lord. Or salvation belongs to the Lord. It's important to revisit this, right? Because there's so much riches here for us. Not just initial salvation belongs to the Lord. Full, complete deliverance and victory belong to the Lord. Salvation in its full orb sense, He alone gives it. He sovereignly bestows it freely. The whole of salvation, from its beginning to its end in glory, is God's doing. Salvation belongs to God. What He needs to restore and resurrect all things is simply dead people, engulfed people right the reformers got this repeatedly this was one of the themes of the reformation right that salvation comes from the lord that it's all to god's glory that it's all by his grace even when we participate in it even when we're active it's all of grace that's why the reformers said that justification by faith alone is the article on which the church stands or falls and it still is it needs to resonate with us salvation is of the lord it's a great conviction of ours that salvation is not an act of God plus an act of our free wills. Because it's an act of God against our hostile, blinded, fleeing, rebellious, Jonah-like wills. By the way, even if you're saved, you know that your will is still refractory, right? We know, we know what we're dealing with. You may think, well, I'm not engulfed in anything like this in my life. Here's what I would suggest. Take a good, deep look way down there. Because there's turbulent, raging seas in every human soul if you look down far enough and you scratch them far enough and you open them up far enough. You'll realize that right down there, there is chaos. There is entrenched evil. There is fear. There is dread. You You may not notice an external sea, but there's an internal raging sea inside of every human person. God saves us against that chaos, over our heads, and against our wills. The great 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon said, the great fish must have been an Arminian. Because as soon as Jonah said, salvation is from the Lord, it vomited him out of his mouth. (laughs) Don't know how Spurgeon thinks of this stuff. I I don't have that gift, but... uh... So salvation is from the Lord, not from the Lord and our plans, right? From the Lord. And, and verse 10 says the Lord commands the fish and the fish obeyed and deposits Jonah on the shore. So I'm going to conclude with two points, and they're, they should be pretty obvious by now. The first one's about Christ, and the second one's about us in Christ. So, again, this cannot be said too much. The whole ordeal points us to Jesus, <laughs> This is what scripture does, whether it's Jonah and the whale, or Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Moses. It's pointing us to Christ. He himself tells us this, right? About his own three days in the earth being the sign of Jonah. Jonah was entombed. Jesus was entombed. Jonah was delivered miraculously from the realm of the dead. Jesus was vindicated in the mighty act of the resurrection. Yet I want to say this. Remember, it's important to see this. Jonah, you know, for all of the terror that he endured, he's just a pale shadow. He's just a pointer to Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah. What we really see as people who live in the New Covenant in this text is the God-forsakenness of Christ. His cry of dereliction from the depths which is described, by the way, in Psalm 22. You know Psalm 22 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will find this engulfing, watery language there. Surrounded by all these beasts that are ready to tear his flesh apart. It's his descent into the darkness and hell of bearing our sins. That chaotic darkness inside every soul. Right, his bearing of the just wrath and curse of God. His sweating blood. Then his yielding himself in obedient conformity to the Father. His praying. Jonah prayed from the belly at the bottom. Jesus prayed from the belly at the bottom. Not my will, but thy will be done. And then he drinks the cup of judgment. Sheds his blood, for he himself is the mercy seat. He himself is the place. Christ is the place of atoning reconciliation. The place to which Jonah looked in the temple and the place to which Jonah prayed when he spoke of the temple. So when you see the cross of Jesus, you should see a raging cosmic battle with the powers of death that surrounded him and engulfed him and encircled him and sought to drown him and destroy him. And by that cross, he tramples them. Right, The cross is an apocalyptic intervention by God into the chaos of the world to set it right. That's what we see when we see the cross. And the reason we see that is because we read the Psalms. And we read them as pointing to Jesus. Jesus remembered his father when his life was ebbing away, just like Jonah said. And God heard him. We're told that in Hebrews, right? God heard his cry. We're told that in Psalm 22, God heard his cry. He heard him from his holy temple. And vindicates him openly in the resurrection. So let's talk about us. So the the journey of Jonah was a picture of the journey of Christ. Down into death, up into resurrection. But remember, here's where the text gets very personal. That's the same journey we all make in baptism. So it kind of goes like this, right? Jonah points to Christ, and then we think about ourselves united to Christ. This is how we read the Old Testament. The text points to Christ, and in pointing to Christ, it also points to the Christian life because we are baptized into Christ. And that's clearly how this story is to be read by us. This is the journey you make, we all make, in baptism because baptism is a watery ordeal. It's a watery grave and it's also a watery spirit-empowered resurrection. Jonah's story it turns out is your story. He dies, he's disenfranchised, he raised, he's re-enfranchised. He undergoes this displacement of baptism. Not just once by the way, is this your story. Like it's not like we're baptized and then we move on to the rest of the story. But at every point, at every moment of your Christian life, baptism seals and unites you to Christ. Which means, right, we're constantly dying to sin and being quickened to life. In a certain sense, we never get out of the depths in this age. We're we're quickened, right? There's not two things, right? We never leave the cross behind. Often we think this way, I think. The cross is great because Jesus bears our sins and we get forgiveness, and then we get resurrection power. But of course, we never just leave the cross behind. right? We die daily. We have to die to sin. Right? As I said before, Jesus never says, take up your resurrection and follow me. Right? You have to take the cross up, and then in the mystery of the cross, we know the power of the resurrection. And that's how this happens to us in this age. Right? This is why Paul can say stuff like, I determined to know among you nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I will boast in nothing, he tells the Galatian Christians, except for the cross of Christ. He's not forgetting the resurrection. He just knows we tend to forget the cross. We think we can leave it behind and move on to the resurrection. But we've got both of these things. We're continually dying to sin. You know what that means? The descent is easier if God doesn't have to force our hands, like if we choose the lowest place. Right? What, right? We, we, can, we can continually take the lowest place. We can turn the other cheek. We can love our enemies. We cannot return evil for evil. We cannot revile when we're reviled. We can take the way of the cross. We can choose to descend freely. If we don't, God will have fish come and swallow you up. But we can choose it, right? And then we're continually, as we do this, mysteriously quickened to life. We think it's going to be death, but it's life. We present ourselves and our members as alive to God through Jesus Christ. This is the way of your salvation. Mortification, quickening, death and resurrection at every point. So let me put it a little more provocatively. Right now as you sit here, you are crucified with Christ and raised from Christ at the same time at every instance of your Christian life. It's quite a mystery, right? It's, it's, it's very hard to fathom it and sort it all out. It's It's certainly, uh, you know, it's not what C.S. Lewis called a thin and clear religion that we have, right? Lewis said there's two kinds of religions in the world. There's the thin and clear kind, by which he meant a lot of Eastern stuff. You know, meaning it's it's pretty easy to see what's going on here. And then there's, he said, the thick and smoky kind. And when you have a cross at the center of it and you have this mystery of dying and rising with that cross, you have a thick, smoky religion. So we are all Jonah's. And this is the way, this descent and ascent is the way to your wholeness, to your renewal. Now, we, we are by nature creatures who want to navigate out of this. So we have some descent situation or some cross situation or some friction situation, and we want to get around it to the resurrection part. Right? We want to negotiate it somehow. And often God is saying to us, no, just descend into it die, let me do the stuff I'm trying to do. And you'll find new life and light on the other side of it. You'll find new glory on the other side of it. Through the chaos and the darkness, out into the light. So, to conclude, Jonah's declaration that salvation is from the Lord points us to Jesus. Because he is the Lord incarnate, whose very name, right, Jesus' name means salvation. Salvation. So let's just translate Jonah's declaration, his exclamation at the end of our text, into New Covenant language. We now say this, Jesus Christ is our salvation. He is your salvation, and he provides salvation for you. He's the the telos, the end or the goal. He is himself our salvation. Paul says he has become wisdom for you. Christ is your wisdom. Sanctification. Righteousness and redemption if you have him you have all you need it does not matter how engulfed you are or how high the waters are if we have Christ we have all we need that's why paul can write to the colossian christians and say in him you've been filled up right in him you have been made complete this is a text in which the glory of christ as our salvation is luminously set forth. His now is the name above all names, right? Because he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father who raised him from the dead. The same God who has in Christ raised you from death, seated you with him. Not in an earthly temple, but in the heavenly temple where the blood Of the slain and risen Lamb is applied for us before the face of God in glory, the place to which our prayers ascend. So, again, in short, His descent and ascent are for our sakes. We join Him on the journey. He goes first as the forerunner. They are our judgment unto salvation. There's a wonderful uh, quote that I want to leave you with. It's from Cyril of Jerusalem, the church father from the 5th century. He says this. He says, Jonah was cast into the belly of a great fish. But Christ of his own will descended to the abode of the invisible fish of death. To make death disgorge those it had swallowed up. According to the scripture, I shall deliver them from the power of the netherworld and I shall redeem them from death. That's Cyril of Jerusalem. It reminded me reading it of the symbol of the fish that the early church developed as a sort of secret sign of Christ and that you know the Greek word for fish is ichthus and the first letter of every you know, first of all, those Greek letters put together creates an acronym right if you translate the acronym it's Jesus Christ son of God savior i believe or in Jonah's words it's the lord who is our savior Now, I don't think the early Christians had Jonah's story in view when they developed that fish, but it would be fitting. It'd be fitting. Jesus is the fish, which swallows up, as Cyril fancifully puts it, the invisible fish of death. So don't miss this, right? Christ disgorges us from death, which had swallowed us up. Death swallowed us up. He swallows it up in resurrection. We have the foretaste of that now. But we're waiting for the fullness of it. For the day when, as Revelation 7 puts it, we heard this in the New Testament lesson, the sea will give up its dead that are in it. Right? Jonas just was a symbolic first fruits of the sea giving up its dead. You know what else? There's tens of thousands of dead down there. It's going to give them up. The sea is going to give up all of its dead. And we're waiting for that day. The sea will give up its dead and death and Hades will give up the dead that are in them. And then, John says, each person shall be judged according to what he had done. We are waiting then for the risen one who has conquered and abolished death to, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, swallow up death forever. Right? And then, at that time, Because the sign of Jonah has been fulfilled to its complete end in Jesus Christ. We join the fullness of the scene that we heard in the New Testament lesson. We join that scene. It's a great multitude, the text says, which no one can count. From every nation and tribe and people and language. You know who's in that crowd? These Gentile pagan sailors who God converted through the disobedience of Jonah. Them, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes, the text says, holding palm branches, crying out in a loud voice. And what do they cry out? They actually echo the words of our text. They actually echo Jonah's great declaration of the theme of the Bible as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They say, and we had this in our opening call to worship, they say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, That's Jonah's declaration. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen.